This episode was sponsored by Book of the Month, which is a curated book subscription that offers five new and early release books to choose from each month. Um, I've personally used Book of the Month before. It is a great way to discover new authors. Yeah, now that we're all um, locked indoors for the foreseeable future, there's never been a better time to pull up an extra book to read in addition to um, our usual books and mobile book club picks. Book of the Month's editorial team chooses their books, um, vetting them from hundreds per month. And you, as a subscriber, can choose up to three books each month for them to ship right to your door. And also, Book of the Month is commitment-free. You can skip a month uh, if you don't find any books that you want to read. Uh, and you can save those as credits for next month. And this month's selection of books are Beach Read by Emily Henry, The Guest List by Lucy Foley, Valentine by Elizabeth Wetmore, The Library of Legends by Janie Chang, and The Paris Hours by Alex George. Check out their website at bookofthemonth.com um, to learn more about the book picks. And you can also get your first month's book for just $9.99 with the promo code Books and Boba, all caps lock. Again, the website is bookofthemonth.com and you can get your first month's book for just $9.99 with the promo code Books and Bulba. And now to our episode. You're listening to Whoa! Hot Luck! And welcome back to Books and Boba, a book club and podcast featuring books by Asian and Asian American authors. My name is Marvin Ye. And I'm Ri Rayu. And today we have an author interview for you. Um, we're interviewing Eileen Wong, also known as her pen name, I.W. Gregorio. Eileen, if you remember, uh, was the author of one of our earlier book club picks, None of the Above, about a girl who finds out that she's intersex. And we're really excited that her second book is coming out soon. Uh, Rira has already read it and is um, a big fan. And for those of you who don't know what the book is about, uh, This Is My Brain in Love. It's told in two perspectives. Uh, uh, Will, who is mixed race, he's uh, his mother is Nigerian and his father is Italian-American and is from an upper middle class family. And he is diagnosed with anxiety disorder. And he falls in love with Jocelyn, who is Chinese-American. She's the daughter of uh, Chinese immigrants who run pretty much the only Chinese restaurant in their town in central New York. And she is undiagnosed with depression. So uh, it's a very interesting love story, in my opinion. So I was really excited to talk to Eileen yeah, um, we talked to her all about the book, about her work, and also about her uh, her background as a. I, I forgot about this until I um, read up on her her bio to prepare for this interview, but she is an actual bona fide doctor. Yeah, she went to school for it and everything, <laughs> which makes her just all the more impressive. And uh, we had a really good conversation with her about writing, about the book, and also about um, the need for diverse books. So yeah, um, please enjoy our interview with Eileen Wong. And we're here with Eileen Wong. Um, 
aka I.W. Gregorio, whose new book, This Is My Brain in Love, comes out next Tuesday. Uh, welcome to the show, Eileen. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. How are you doing during this um, this weird and strange time? It's in? a very interesting time. Um, as you may know, I'm a doctor, and so um, I am in this strange position where I know that my skills are needed, but because I'm a subspecialist, I'm a, I'm actually a urologist, so you can insert joke there. <laughs> um, so I, I actually am a lot um, less busy than I used to be because hospitals have stopped all elective surgeries. So I'm only doing emergency surgeries, which luckily in urology are, are relatively few and far between. Um, and I'm talking to most of my patients over the phone or video and telehealth which is also interesting because it really changes the dynamic um, of the doctor-patient relationship. It's kind of harder to get people's stories. Um, but at the same time, um, I feel like it's at least a good thing for my patients. A lot of them are just so grateful to talk to someone else, you know? Um, so yeah. it's a strange though. It, it, the, the surge in my part of the country will probably start next week or the week after, um, literally right around my launch date. Um, and so there have been rumblings about them, my hospitals pulling, you know, even specialists um, into the intensive care units if necessary. So yeah, that's a little bit, a little bit frightening because I have two young kids, but um, it's, just, it's a world that we're living in right now. Yeah. I know that's something that the doctors, the hospitals are doing here in California. Um mm-hmm. You're based in Pennsylvania, I believe? Yeah. And Philly is one of the new hotspots, mm. for sure. Well, hope you stay safe. And um, So yeah. you're a doctor. How did you start writing? So it's that, such a different career, you know? Yeah. Well, I always used to say, you know, some, a lot of people ask me, so, oh, so how did a doctor become a writer? And I think the better question to ask is really, how did a writer become a doctor? Because <laughs> I've always wanted to be a writer since I was really young. Um, I was a complete book nerd when I was growing up. Um, I used to always joke that my my best friends were always characters in books. Um, and um, since I was, gosh, six or seven years old, I remember writing my first short story for a second grade anthology um, and seeing my book quote, my words quote, in print um, at that time. And ever since then, um, I always, you know, in my dreams, I always thought that I was going to be a writer because I wanted to sort of create those, those, friends uh, that that other kids could could turn to for comfort um but as I got older you know reality kind of set in I had very I grew up with my grandparents actually um who you know grew up in the depression and um were you know immigrants and so they were very very pragmatic and they were basically like so you're good at writing, but how are you going to feed yourself? And so um, my grandfather was a doctor. And so he very strongly pushed me to this towards the sciences. And because, you know, um, I had some aptitude for it. Um, I, I did end up um, double majoring in English and biochemistry um, in college, um, which is not a double major that you see often, but um, that worked for me because sort of around that time, I realized that medicine and writing could absolutely be melded. I have some great role models from that aspect, you know, from the literary world, there's like Chekhov was a, um, was a physician author. So was um, William Carlos Williams. And then there are great surgeon um, essayists like Richard Seltzer and Sherwin Newland, who won a national book award a while, a while ago, Abraham Verkase. Like these are all role models that um, I, I kept as an inspiration 
Um, so throughout college and even medical school and residency, I was doing a lot of writing. Um, I mostly turned towards like essay writing and feature writing. I um, wrote some profiles of patients, for instance, a quadruple amputee who was like also a drummer in a rock band that I met while I was at Stanford. Um, and um, I wrote an op-ed about microbicides and AIDS awareness because I did some work in South Africa. Um, but I didn't really turn to novel writing until my residency program when I had a research year. Um, and it actually came about because I was, I got really depressed during that research year um, because that's the sort of gap year in during residency where you're not really seeing patients, where you're stuck in a lab often, you know, <laughs> massacring small animals. And, um, and I got really sad and depression is something that I have struggled with um, for most of my life. And um, it was actually my therapist um, who um, I was speaking to one day and I was talking about how I was, you know, really not excited about my program. And she asked me, okay, so what do you think you, you would be if you weren't a doctor? And I said, and I, and I said, Oh, I, I would be a writer. And immediately she said, oh, oh no, you don't have the personality to be a writer. And I was oh, like, what, what, the what are you talking about? <laughs> and I was so mad. And that was like the gauntlet. That was like, I'm going to prove you wrong. I was so incensed by that. And that's when I actually started writing my first novel, which, um, interestingly enough, was a very thinly veiled autobiography of an Asian American nerd growing up in central New York. Um, and uh, that first book, um, you know, it was my first novel. So I, I didn't really expect it to be great, but um, I did get an agent with it. Um, and we actually went on submission. Um, but the three different editors um, said, oh, we love the concept. We love the, the writing, the voice. but it's too similar to another Asian American book on our list. Oh no. And so that was one of your quota. That was one of the things that really inspired me when we need diverse books came along to be part of that movement. Um, um, My second novel was actually almost perfectly just this, a book that in some ways only I could, as I, as a physician writer could have written um, because it was inspired by an actual patient that I treated who found out when she was 17 that she was intersex, um, neither male nor female biologically, but something in between. She um, had something called androgen sensitivity syndrome, um, where she, phenotypically, she grew up thinking she was a girl and she identified as a female. But she had XY chromosomes and no uterus and internal testes. And um, so I actually participated in the surgery to remove her testes. And that was uh, a real eye-opening experience for me, not because of surgery, which is very straightforward, but because of the, of the care of her afterwards. I saw her in clinic and I realized that um, it was sort of a failure in medicine, of medicine that I've never really had to think about or was educated on how to care for intersex patients beyond their medical procedures, to think of them holistically, to like in, introduce them to people to support because so many intersex kids have been subjected to surgeries before in the hope because it would reduce parental stress or child's, you know, or stress of the patient. But in fact, a lot, most of the medical developments in intersex care happened just because of the internet, because they were able to connect with other people and establish um, a sense of identity and community that is much more healing than any medical intervention that we could do for most kids. So that inspired me because I basically wanted to write a why in middle sex. Um, and that's what I did. That was my first novel, None of the Above. Yeah, we actually, um, it was one of our earlier picks for our book club. And we were really glad to um, to read a story yeah. like that. I saw that. I was so I was so excited when I saw that. <laughs> oh, <my gosh. laughs> oh, man. So many things 
um, that you just said we really want to touch on later, especially uh, talking about we need diverse books. Um, but personally, as um, someone that uh, has notorious on this podcast said that I don't really read much YA, even though I've read a bunch of YA mm-hmm. for the book club. What drew you to wanting to write in um, YA? Yeah, I mean, like I said, when I was growing up, um, books were books were my best friends. They were the vehicles through which I was able to inhabit other people's lives and learn about the world. And I mean, basically, basically, basically established my moral code. You know, I don't think that I would be as you know open and accepting and liberal as I were now if it weren't for books and youth. Those those years between whenever kids start reading and when they have to start thinking about college, those are the formative years of people's lives, and those are when they can read the most. You know, the the the. I mean, I I'm I'm often really ashamed to admit how many books I actually read because you know I have a job and kids and other responsibilities. I have three jobs essentially, um, and but I remember when I was a when I was a kid, a teenager, I would read a book a day, literally. And those, those are the books that made me who I was, who I am as a person. And what I realized that I wanted to do is I wanted to, number one, I wanted to create um, books that I needed as a teenager um, because I, rem- I don't, there was never really a book that reflected who I was. There were a couple of scattered books about um, Asian American kids, but usually they were very different immigration stories than mine was. Um, you know, I was growing up in, in central New York, very, um, very red part of New York, um, where I was really the only Asian American person there, except for one or two others. Um, but a lot of books were set in sort of a Chinatown, like Lawrence Yep. Um, then there, and, and a lot of the stories were very, very different than mine were, um, because I had, I, I was definitely a banana, <laughs> you know, I, um, my, my <laughs> grand, my grandparents actually immigrated from South Africa, believe it or not. And, um, there, so their primary language was English, and so they were also always. It was always easier for them to assimilate, um, and so it was easier for me to as well. Um, but and I never really gained a sense of my cultural identity until um, college, when I went to University of Pennsylvania, which has a very large Asian American population. Um, so I always wanted to write books that that reflected who I was growing up, um, and I also really believe in the power of books to create conversations, um, which is why none of the above was such an important book for me. Um, because it, I hope that all of my books are what I like to call blueberries where they're like nutritious for you. They're superfoods, but they're also, um, (laughs) tasty. (laughs) Like you can eat them for dessert. Um, they're easy to, easy to put down as it were, um, or easy, not easy to put down, but easy to, easy to eat and happy. You're happy to eat it. But you can hopefully read through my books relatively quickly in that hopefully you don't want to put it down yeah okay follow-up question um because it's something i'm trying to trying to figure out my own too Um, what how would you define what a ya story Mm -hmm. is like what makes a story YA? yeah i think stories it is and there's why is is a subcategory that is so wide it encompasses so many subgenres um but i think that the key thing is that the perspective is usually from a young adult there are certainly books written from younger points of view, but that are still adult books. For instance, uh, I'm thinking of Room by Anna Donahue. I mean, it's through the eyes of a five-year-old, but it's really written um, for an adult perspective and adults play a much larger role in it. So I hesitate to to put YA into a box, but I, I, I can say that for me, YA is about 
telling a story through the perspective of someone who doesn't necessarily have the lens to really look at it retrospectively. Like it's very, why is very in the present? You know, why is Mm -hmm. very granular and like into the details and into the now and the pathos and the drama. Um, And it's about, why is about coming of age um, and um, understanding, you know, who the monsters actually are underneath your bed. So um, I just want to like move on to your newest book. This is my brain in love. Um, You seem to have a knack for writing about teens grappling with stigma because in your book, you have two racial minority teens who are grappling Mm -hmm. with mental illness. And you mentioned earlier that you personally uh, went through depression yourself. So I just want to ask you like, what was, the process of um, developing this novel, like what was, uh, I, I guess, like what compelled you to write it? Yeah. I mean, it's so, it's so funny when you write a first book and, and like the, the task of writing a second book is so monumental. Um, it's like, it, it, it really came to me over a long time. It took me a long time um, between book. It was five years. Um, I will say that I, I realized pretty early on that I did want to write what I like to call it. The ha- a happy book about mental illness, um, because I do feel that so much of the media representation around um, anxiety and depression these days is really focused on the act of death by suicide. And that's, of course, natural. That's the most dramatic um, component, the natural, the most dramatic endpoint to all of this. But for me, I know um, the journey through anxiety and depression um, was so long, and there were so many steps at which I could have reached reached out or asked for help and, and and looking back I didn't I never really had the language to talk about it growing up and so that's what I wanted to explore because I think that um like I said the act of suicide I really I really wanted to write a book that about depression that did not have an act of suicide because I think that for some people and me growing up especially if you didn't try to commit suicide, there's no way you could have been depressed. You know, like there was no room for that spectrum. And so a lot of people end up hurting or not telling people about that because they don't feel like they're, they're sad enough or, you know, their problems aren't that bad. Um, and I see this both with myself and my, fa- my family that people use um, the most, most extreme examples of mental illness as um, an excuse not to seek help in some ways, you know what I mean? Um, and I would say that for the book, the actual proximal event, the proximal reason I wanted to write that story was because, um, you know, I, it's funny, I actually ended up living in a town that's pretty similar to the one I grew up with in that it's not terribly racially diverse. Um, but there, there used to be a very good Chinese takeout restaurant that I absolutely loved it reminded me of, you know, my family's food growing up. And um, it was in this hole in the wall in this shopping strip that's was essentially abandoned, like right next to a bank. No one went there. Um, but I remember going there once and um, it was a, it was totally family run, um, you know, immigrant um, cashier and cooks and owners. But the one day I went in, there was this tall, gawky white dude trying to make sushi behind the counter and I was like oh my gosh there has to be a story behind that he has to have a crush on the owner's daughter or something like that um and um and that was what sort of inspired the story of you know this immigrant family and their daughter 
um, and using the restaurant as a focus for a relationship, but also talking about the realities of struggling businesses because that restaurant did close down. Um, it was, you know, and, and it's something that uh, I've always, I've always had this real empathy for businesses that close down. I don't know why, um, but it always is really devastating to me. Um, my local independent bookstore closed down twice actually. And so those types of things affect me so much because, because it's not just the place, it's the community that, that they build and um, the relationships that get formed there that I really mourn the loss of. But um, as I was sure. developing the story, um, I wanted mental illness to be part of it. I wanted there to be a sense that crazy is the new normal. Um, reclaim that sense we're crazy and know that the majority of the people that we will meet on the street will have some element of neuroatypia. Um, it was really interesting to me when I started doing the promotion um, for this book, um, how few of my friends actually knew that I had anxiety and depression. Um, in, in a sense, writing this book was like coming out um, with mental illness because um, my best friend from college, she actually got interviewed for uh, a feature on a local newspaper. And afterwards she called me and was like, Eileen, why didn't you tell me everything you went through? I mean, she felt like a bad friend because she didn't know about it. Um, and the same is true of like my family members. I've had people come out to me that, you know, I've known all my life or for, for decades um, to tell me, oh yeah, I've, I've been on these medications too. Um, and it's just, Again, and another example of why we need to talk about these issues—not just not just destigmatize it, but also make people more comfortable talking about it freely. Because a lot of people don't necessarily feel feel stigmatized, but they still feel private about it. And I think mm. that I was one of those people. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I could relate because. Um, as someone who has generalized anxiety disorder and clinical depression, um, I related to Jocelyn and Will's inner monologue so much. Mm -hmm. um, was it always the plan to have two POVs? Yes, alternate? absolutely. Because because I know, I mean, for, for, for a while in college, I did do a little bit of cognitive behavioral therapy. And so I, I've always been amazed at how well cognitive behavioral therapy can I like to say um basically fact check the the fake news in your brain and I knew immediately that this had to be a dual point of view per things because I wanted to be able to show that on the page how two people can look at, at one incident through completely different lens um and um it was, it was hard. It was definitely hard. Um, oh, I'm sure actually, it was. <laughs> this is actually the second time um, I wrote something in double, double, double POV. Believe it or not, none of the above was initially in, in two-person POV. Um, and um, it was uh, Kristen, the intersex person, and then Darren, the boy who fell in love with her. Because I really wanted to get into his head. And, and, and it was funny. A lot of people actually in that book who read the original manuscript liked Darren better, like Darren's POV better. Um, but in the end, I had to take him out because it really was Kristen's story. Um, but in this one, um, I stuck to my guns and, and I had to do a lot of rewriting to make Will's character more authentic and um, get into his headspace. Um, but it was, like I said, I, I just could not have imagined writing it without the dual narrative to show just how your brain just 
messes you up sometimes and 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 turns you around in, in ways that um, a lot of people looking from the outside can't anticipate. Yeah, anxiety and depression are often two sides of the same coin. So I really appreciate it that you had uh, these two teens with uh, very different but very similar ways of um, creating fake news in their head. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, like romance, uh, romance has a lot of like misunderstandings mm-hmm. and it's mm-hmm. kind of inevitable. And mm-hmm. it's, you know, with 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 two people with mental illnesses where they distort the truth, it, mm-hmm. there's going to be more misunderstandings. So mm-hmm. um, I really liked the prologue that you set in your book because mm-hmm. you upfront set say that uh this is a happy story this isn't a book that's gonna rip your heart out at the end and uh that there is hope in it um moving moving on um what what i thought your book did exceptionally well was uh show how family culture and privilege impact the way we perceive mental illness uh, Will is from an upper middle class family, and he was mm-hmm. diagnosed at a young age mm-hmm. and uh, sees a professional, whereas Jocelyn is from um, a working class Chinese American family, mm-hmm. and she's undiagnosed. So I just want to ask you, like, why did you decide to have uh, those two differences mm-hmm. for your two protagonists? Yeah. There are a lot of reasons. Um, number one, I am like s- completely aware of how inequality exacerbates like people's access to mental health treatment. I mean, I remember when I was a poor resident, like how I felt like, you know, even being able to pay for therapy was, was such a stretch. Um, but number two, I also really wanted to, to subvert the Asian Americans model minority stereotype. Um, and like, that was something I knew I wanted to do really, really uh, early on was to not have my Asian character be the straight A, you know, Ivy League bound person, um, and to actually have the black character be the one who was more upper middle, middle class and who um, was the, the the model student per se. And um, yeah, I'm I'm so glad that you you picked up on that and appreciated that because it was something that I did very very consciously um, because um, you know I'm aware of the own privilege that I give my children, for instance, because of who I am. Um, that, you know, I've given them access to therapy really early on before they, quote, needed it, um, even according to my own family members. Um, but um, I know that there are so many, especially within the Asian American population, there is so much stigma and shame attached to it. And it's not something that people prioritize from a financial standpoint, um, because so many people have struggled um, just to pay the bills, to eat. Um, it seems like such a luxury to be able to spend, you know, three figures on a single therapy session. Mm, yeah, definitely. It is a deterrent for a lot of Asian American families. And um, I, I think I think it was one of Will's uh, family members that says, um, you know, in Nigeria, they don't believe in mental illnesses. They yeah, believe that it's an yeah. American disease. And I think that's, yeah. that's kind of a similar mindset that a lot of Asian American families have. We mm-hmm. don't really have the tools or the language to uh, discuss mental health. Mm-hmm. Um, so Will, it's like Will is black. At, he's mm-hmm. actually mixed race. And mm-hmm. Jocelyn is Chinese American, as we said. And they both face microaggressions. Mm-hmm. And, uh, 
I just wanted to add, like pick your brain in uh, why you decided to make the couple interracial and feature these microaggressions. Like what, uh, why was it important to you to yeah. feature that in the book? I think that that the racial microaggressions, I mean, there's this whole concept of minority stress, you know, the idea that um, mo- all minorities, when they overcome, like have to overcome prejudices or instances of that, that where they might have more anxiety in a situation than other people, like that wears on it. Um, even, even today in reading a New York Times article on why um, the coronavirus has hit African-American communities so hard, like they talk about this idea of weathering. In other words, that like the constant stress of like being, you know, being minority, being discriminated against, like systemic um, inequality, like plays plays a role in worsening both physical and mental health, which makes you vulnerable to other things. And um, I mean, microaggressions were something that I never knew existed until after college, probably graduate school. Um, I don't think I ever, I, I even under, I, 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 I don't think I, I, I always internalized the little, the little paper cuts and like the little insults and the little side, um, sideways um, bits of praise. The little, and and I don't think I really understood the damage that that did until later on. And and, that, and I did feel like, again, that's something that I wanted to write into the story that I wish I had had as a teenager, um, and giving people the language to be able to identify that and in identifying that realize that other people share that and can commiserate and, you know, help you almost turn it into a joke or a meme. Um, There's, there's nothing more alienating than feeling like, like you've been insulted, but that no one can understand that you've been insulted, I think. Um, And um, that was part of what I wanted to do in, in writing about that and actually having the two teams be able to connect over that. Yeah, and it's and Will's race is actually a really big factor into uh, into the relationship because mm-hmm. uh, Jocelyn's dad kind of comes up with this contract: say, mm-hmm. if you want to date my daughter, these are the these are the tasks you must do. Yeah, and yeah. Um, I thought I thought the contract was really cute, uh, but I did really like the fact that you mentioned uh, how Asians have internalized racist ideas. Um, and they not only have it towards black people, but they also have it, uh, within subsets of the Asian oh, yeah. community. <laughs> yeah. I, I had a much more in-depth, um, analysis of that, that unfortunately didn't make it through edits because I thought it'd be too alienating, but someday I'll, I'll, I'll unearth that. I don't know, maybe as an extra to, <laughs> to people in the Asian community because, um, oh yeah, I have countless um, really funny um, episodes um, from you know my family and friends on uh, on how, uh, yeah, <laughs> and how that Asian Asian and Asian crime it definitely exists. Yeah, like and especially towards like Asian communities against uh, Black communities. I I yeah. I remember growing up, my parents giving me the whole like no dating until college talk, and mm-hmm. uh, and them saying like these are the people you can date. Mm-hmm. And these are not, and these are not, yep. and yep. Uh, unfortunately, like the these are not were um, were black people, and yeah. it it was like the first time when I realized that my like that there was this stigma, there was this racial like internalized racism, and um, you know, like 
as a child of immigrants, you kind of try to excuse that for for, for your parents because exactly. it's like exactly. it's like oh they don't understand like they came from a different country. But at yeah. some point, uh, it's not acceptable. And I really like the fact that you made Jocelyn uh, stand up to them at some point. Uh, I thought that was like a really poignant scene in your book. Uh, I'm guessing that that was something that you really wanted to show, right? Yeah, no, I had the same exact conversation with my mom. And like, <laughs> except she also included white people because they quote they only want one thing, and then went down a list of every type of Asian. She decided the only person I could date was a Taiwanese American. Wow, that's like very I mean, specific. Was, yeah, very specific. Um, yeah, it was it was priceless. Um, I yeah. uh, as much as this is a a, a of falling in love story. Um, this is also a story about family and mm-hmm. uh, a story about like a child of immigrants trying to understand her parents and just kind of bridging this gap. And uh, one of the relationships that I really loved was um, the father and uh, and with Jocelyn, because you have uh, Jocelyn's father who is very I, I guess the nice way to put it is conservative, <laughs> very <laughs> yes. protective. Uh-huh. Um, was that a relationship that you had with your parents? Like, is that something that transitioned onto the page? I I definitely think there were aspects. Yeah, there are definitely aspects of that um, from, you know, my personal life and from the friends of the parents of other friends. Um, I don't think it's uncommon at all. Um, I, I feel like a lot of a lot of my Asian friends were kind of nodding their heads along <laughs> with, <laughs> with some of the characterizations um, um, because it, it is a generational difference. Definitely. It's in people come, who, who came from a very different place and with very different struggles are going to, are going to be protective of their own. Um, and I understand that. I liked how um, like Joss's, father wasn't wasn't okay with her dating until college but then uh another asian uh asian dad in town says no i like it's okay for your <laughs> your kid to date you have to be more modern and it, it, it was just a small thing but mm-hmm. it just kind of showed that all asian parents aren't the same yes <laughs> yeah no yeah i definitely wanted to do that um as well um even though it wasn't in my experience, I have heard of those parents. <laughs> <laughs> not not all of us can be Peggy Chang and have a cool dad. Uh, yeah. Um, I was also so impressed by uh, like the kids' ingenuity when it came to marketing and business strategies <laughs> to to save the restaurant. Um, like, how did you come up with those? Did you ask no. teens to to brainstorm with you? Um, no, I did a lot of googling, and you know, there, you know, a lot there are lots like Harvard Business Review, and like like there are lots of different strategies because I mean, it's a it's a big problem. Um, and honestly, I use some of the techniques that you use as an author, right, to to promote and and get visitors. Um, and um, I'm, I think I'm also you know very much a thrifty cheap Asian at heart and so like I'm all about like knowing the power of coupons <laughs> you know <laughs> even though it is a fallacy like you know people give you a coupon so you'll buy more um I, a lot of them I think that um I came up based on you know how I would market if I were 
you know, running a business, but a lot comes from being an author and having to market that way. And then also some tips online. Um, there are definitely um, a lot of blogs out there and websites on, you know, how to bring traffic, but some of it's just observed from looking at, at going to some restaurants that I like, you know, local restaurants I know and realizing being appalled at how little of a social media they have, like how they don't necessarily haven't necessarily curated their Yelp page, but, and, and understanding the generational gap between like how certain how people just don't know how people are finding restaurants these days. Um, yeah, there are a lot of places I know that don't even have Facebook pages. Like I went to, I literally went to um, a local um, Chinese restaurant that, you know, was very, very much struggling. Um, you could tell. And so I went and I was like, you know, can I, I can help you make a Facebook page. And they were like, do you have to pay for that? Oh my God. No. So, I mean, really like this, this is real life. And yeah. Yeah. It reminds me of um, a lot of business now in like our little Tokyo neighborhood mm-hmm. here in LA are, on Grubhub yeah. for the first time or on online ordering oh, services geez. for the first time because yeah. because of necessity, but also because there are young people who are invested in these businesses surviving, exactly. helping them like yeah. modernize. Yeah. You know? And that's a great, I mean, that's a great way for the community to get around it. And now that people have time where they can do that type of thing. That's really, that's a really, you know, one of those rare silver linings of this time. That's really great. <laughs> that makes me really happy to know that because uh, my grandfather owned um, his own medical practice, but like very, very randomly, he also owned a gas station convenience store <laughs> in one of the towns surrounding Utica, mm-hmm. New York. And I remember going there and yeah, thinking the place looks like our basement, which means totally disorganized and like, you know, having ideas in my head and how it could be better, but not really wanting to have anything to do with it. So, <laughs> so this is all a little bit coming from personal experience and, um, I, I think I do have a natural inclination towards like wanting to get an extra buck. So <laughs> sort of my, if I were a business person, this is what I would do. I mean, when I, when I was reading the book, I was like, wow, these kids are so savvy. Like what was I doing when I was in high school? I definitely did not have the skills that kids have these days. Oh God, I felt I, I sound so old by saying like these days, but these days, um, yeah. yeah, they are though. They are really good. Like I actually hired a high school student um, to be my social media intern now. And, and she's been amazing. Um, I will give a shout out to Kim Le. Um, I don't actually don't know how to pronounce her name, whether she pronounces it Le or Le. Um, but she, I'll, I'll tag her maybe when I, when I, uh, retweet this mm-hmm. because um, she's been amazing. Like she'll, she actually taught me Instagram a little bit and um, has been helping me out a lot of stuff because yeah, it's a generational thing. And of course my daughter, my 10 year old daughter is teaching me about TikTok. So yay. <laughs> um, so Jocelyn and her best friend Priya are cinephiles. They're really into movies, particularly mm-hmm. older mm-hmm. ones on the AFI list. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they kind of categorize their life events into movie tropes, which I thought was like a really uh, cute element to your book. Mm-hmm. Are you a real, are you a big movie buff as well? Or was that something I, you had to research? I definitely, I definitely am less so now than when I was younger. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm like constantly checking IMDB and, um, I'm definitely a, a pretty, I'm, I, I, compared to say my husband who thought that Ang Lee and Spike Lee were the same person. I'm definitely a cinemaphile. Um, <laughs> but, um, 
I, I think that, um, obviously movies are like kind of a shortcut to stories. Um, and they're, I think for someone growing up again in a really, um, small insular place, like they're really an avenue to see other places and to do, and to, to really inhabit the world of other people. And, um, I think that, um, movies in some ways, uh, definitely movies, um, have this, this moment that we have this place in our culture that, um, is both good and bad, um, because of how they can either perpetuate tropes or invert them. And, um, I, I think that because one of the things I wanted to do and running the book was to subvert some stereotypes, like I came upon this idea of using tropes as Jocelyn's thing pretty early on, because I am kind of obsessed with the TV tropes website. I'll, I'll, I'll admit it. It's like, you can just go down and a rabbit. Oh, oh my god, it's hole. such a rabbit hole. You can go there, <laughs> and it's so it's so spot on though. Like how you can see these, see the way that Hollywood writers have like latched onto these um, generic ideas that like have so much resonance. You know, it's amazing. It's it's really amazing, and so I, I was really happy to be able to use that because I think it's a great lens. For, for that kids can use to sort of suss out what's real and what's not um, and also to help them make sense of the world. But it can also be a good, a good way in for kids to think about their thought processes and like sort of it can almost help you with cognitive behavioral therapy in that like it can say, okay, this thought is a trope. You know, how can I do something different, do something original, do something more real? Uh, do you have a favorite trope? Oh no! <laughs> I don't think anyone can <laughs> have a favorite trope. Um, What's your favorite YA trope? Oh, jeez! Uh, Sorry to put you on the spot, Because <laughs> for Rira, it's the um, fake. Yeah, well, oh, it's, it's yeah, like, the, fr- like in Frankly in Love. Frankly in Love. Yeah, yes. definitely. That's a that's a good trope. Oh man. Um, Oh my! You know what? My favorite trope in in general is, um, and I don't know what the exact name of it, but is the trope of an the enemy that you later become friends with. Oh, I think they call it enemy yeah. friend. Yeah, the enemy right? to friend or, trope. Yeah, um, because I'm, I think of like all the classic books of my youth, like Bridget Terabithia, how like that mean girl ends up being like she befriends the mean girl, and like, um, yeah. So I love that trope. I love you utilizing that, and even though it never really happens in real life, I. like the idea of it um i i really like priya as a character um and how she's a friend to jocelyn um she is so supportive and she tries to be so positive uh for for jocelyn trying to build her up saying don't be so hard on yourself but also priya doesn't really quite know how to seek help for Jocelyn and it's a struggle that Will has as well Mm -hmm. and I feel like it's it's a common um it's common for a lot of people who know people with mental illnesses Mm -hmm. and uh with Jocelyn I think it was um I guess like really really powerful to me because she is still undiagnosed and because Mm -hmm. she grew up in a family that doesn't really uh believe in seeking even just doctors for for normal ailments, um, she's like really hesitant to go seek help. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't know, like was 
like you you said earlier that a lot of your friends didn't know that you had depression and that there's no way that they could have known the best way to help you. Mm-hmm. Um I I really don't know how to form a question because <laughs> cuz I just I was just so impressed by how how authentic that was. Like yeah. how do you help someone who doesn't want to be helped? Yeah. I feel like I I know I've experienced it from both ways. Um I I've experienced it from from the point of view of someone who's depressed but then have know someone has a friend who life always seems to be whose life always seems to be great and happy, you know? And like, they're the type of friend that you go to and they're like, always trying to give you advice. Um, and it's, and it stings because they, they don't quite get it, you know? And, and I think that unless you've experienced depression, sometimes it can seem like it's almost imaginary to some people. Just think positive thoughts and everything will be fine, you know? And um, so I've experienced it from that way, that perspective. Um, I've also experienced it from the opposite um, perspective. In other words, being um, friends with or in love with someone who needs help but will not get it. Um, And um, I think men, I mean, in my experience, men in general have been a lot more reluctant to seek help, kind of like how they don't want to ask for directions when they're lost. (laughs) Um, And I I definitely have at least two relationships where I felt like I've had, you know, the more I suggest it, the more they dig in. Um, And and that is very true. Like Jocelyn's digging in, like her bristling, her defensiveness. Um, when Will suggests that she could talk to someone is is definitely from real, like my real experience, and and it's tough. I get it. I get it. Um, so just wrapping up, um, you said that you're not reading as much nowadays. But is there a book that uh, have caught your eye recently? Oh gosh, where to start? I have so <laughs> many. Oh my god, I have. I actually have a lot of um, audio books that I'm like part way through. Like I'm partway through Stacy Lee's um, Downstairs Girl. Um, I'm really looking forward to um, um, Samira Ahmed's um, next book, Bad, Mad, and um, Dangerous to Know. Um, I'm really looking forward to um, uh, the obvious ones are like Liz Acevedo's next book. Um, I'm still behind on. Um, Oh, Lamar Giles is one of my favorite people, and uh, I'm a couple of books behind on him. He's like too prolific, though. He's written too many books, the the jerk. Um, and um, gosh, there's so you're, many books I want to plug. You're just listing my TBR right now. I'm sorry. I feel, so, like, I I feel mean, so couple, guilty because I haven't pe- gotten to them. <laughs> there are people. There are people on who I'm going to be on like virtual tour with, and like. I haven't, you know, I've read their, you know, earlier books, but haven't read their latest books. So like Emery Lord, you know, Jasmine Warga, Eric Smith. It's like, oh, help me guys. But actually <laughs> this is where coronavirus does help. I got a lot more time to read now, but um, well, you know, or at least listen on audiobook. Um, there are lots and lots of books that I want to read right now. And, and, and it's just, it's just too much, um, but in a good way, yeah. in a good way means i have a lot yeah. of books to recommend <laughs> yeah speaking of virtual tours so obviously the coronavirus has hampered a lot of our um normal like operations in the in the book industry 
how can people find out more about your yeah. book? Yeah. So just today, actually, I announced on my blog that I'm doing um, a, a virtual tour um, to support, um, I call it my, this is my brain in love with indie bookstores um, tour. And um, mm. so I'm, I'm partnering with eight um, independent booksellers and each one is going to be hosting a different virtual event um, with um, some of my favorite authors and people. And um, we're just going to go around, do, do different virtual events, different times a day throughout the next week or two. Um, and hopefully people, if people um, buy the books through those, any bookstores, um, I'm going to have a, co- you know, a giveaway. Um, people will be en- randomly entered to in- enter a drawing for a, $100 gift certificate to bookshop.com. And then I'm also offering a secret teacher package, which includes a gift certificate, but also um, a 20 book classroom set for their class and a Skype visit. Um, because I know that so many teachers are having to move um, online these days. Um, and I obviously it can be a Zoom visit since that's the, that's the tool of choice these days. And I'm hoping that we can still reach students um, and um, con- convince them that, that you know why literature really can be such a bomb for um, these times and help them navigate through anxiety um, mm. when there's so much going on in their life. So you mentioned earlier that um, you're involved with We Need Diverse Books, and um, you're actually a founding member of that organization, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, gosh, I think that we need diverse books. It was everything to Twitter, you know, because, um, it was a way for a lot of people who, um, wouldn't normally be able to get together because of geography to realize they were on the same page and with, with their frustrations with their public, with the publishing industry, but also with their hopes for what it could be and how it could start amplifying the voices of diverse authors and, um, like really stimulating intense, um, positive discussions on the power of representation um, and how um, publishers really need to to know how to sell diverse books. Um, I feel that being part of the We Need Diverse Teams team was one of the most stressful times of my life, but also the most rewarding um, because it's it's something that you can see tangible change from um, in so many aspects of the publishing industry. I mean, it's really amazing. Um, and part of the strengths of the We Need Diverse Books campaign is number one, that it was inclusive of all types of diversity. You know, it wasn't, ju- it isn't just about race. It's also about ability and religion um, and um, sexual diversity. Um, and number two is that it realized that the problem with the lack of diversity is systemic. You know, it's not just the editors for not buying the book. It's because the marketing team doesn't necessarily know how to push it. It's because the sales team don't uh, are, are worried, quote, that the book, and I, this is something I was told for none of the above, that it was a tough sell. And I'm like, no, I don't think it's a tough sell if you know how to sell it, um, you know, if you know how to push it. Um, and the other thing is that, um, you know, get, getting into the, we really get into the guts of the industry because we uh we need diverse books establish an internship program to get people at the ground level because the publishing industry is one of, of privilege definitely right in order to work in it you have to be able to live in, in new york city you need to be educated um you need to be able to afford um living in yeah, new york city cheap. on a very low <laughs> wage you know having unpaid internships um and um 
you all, and you happen to realize that that privilege extends to other people, other what they call gatekeepers within the publishing industry, namely teachers and librarians. The majority of teachers and librarians are also white. Um, and so by reaching out to the American Library Association, to English teachers, the NCTE conference, um, We Need Diverse Books really made this something that's discussed across the whole population of readers. And I think that that was what, what, where its success lied. Um, booksellers too, booksellers, um, in, especially indie booksellers um, are so crucial. And I always like to say that um, it's a truth universally known that a diverse book is in need of a teacher, librarian, or bookseller to promote it. For sure. And it's really exciting to have you on because um, I think Reaver and I have been talking about having someone from We Need Diverse Books on the podcast since I think we started almost three years ago. <laughs> yeah, because We Need Diverse Books uh, started in 2015, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and 2014, technically. Oh, 2014. Yeah, because yeah. like mm-hmm. we started in 2016, oh, so yeah. <laughs> so it wasn't yeah. like that. Uh, like We Need Diverse Books was still very young, and we've uh-huh. kind of seen how it has grown into this uh, huge movement and how it has changed publishing, especially in children's literature. And yeah, it's just it's just kind of it's amazing, but at the same time, um, disappointing to see that change has uh been I, I guess because things have stayed the same in publishing for so long it just seems that like any change that happens is like monumental and it's mm-hmm. like yes. it should have happened yeah. a long time ago and yeah it's a exactly. little bit sad that we're like yeah. really happy about it yeah yeah there, we've done a lot but there's still a lot to be done yes, and that's yes. true of everything in, in the world uh, yeah, it's 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 easy to it's easy to be upset about things that still need to change. Um, but I think that it's also really empowering to realize that we have made change. Um, we've definitely moved the needle um, for a lot of titles. So I'm I'm excited about that. Well, thank yeah. you so much for uh, speaking with us, and um, thank just, you guys. We wish you the best of luck with your virtual tour, and uh, just. A closing statement from me. Um, I wish I had. Uh, um, I, I wish I had your book when when I was younger because Aww. I feel like it would have helped uh, helped with my mental illness and helped me navigate it. So I'm sure that there will be teen readers out there who uh, will be grateful for reading it. So Aww, I wish you the best of luck and best of success. Thank you so much for having me yeah. and for getting the book. I mean, it's. It's so amazing to write something and have people actually appreciate the things that you tried to do. I'm like, oh my, it, you know, it's, it's, you know, when you're writing and sitting in your, in your desk, you're just like, are these, do these words make sense? Do they say what I think they mean? And um, thank you. You've, you've set my heart at ease. I feel like, I feel like I'm done. Okay. I'm good. Thank you. <laughs> If people uh, want to follow you on social media, where can they go? Yep. Um, IW Gregorio um, and Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and then my website. Well, thank you so much for taking your time to talk with us. Um, good luck with the book launch. And um, yeah, well, we're, thank we're you so much. And that was our interview with Eileen Wong. We'd like to thank her um, so very much for joining us on Books and Boba. That was a really good conversation. Yeah, huh? We went places. 
<laughs> we dug deep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and um, a quick reminder for everyone that our Books and Boba book club pick for April 2020 um, is Mimi Lee Gets a Clue. Um, so hope you all are um, busy reading that. Um, again, if you have any thoughts, um, please let us know on our Goodreads group. Um, we always love to hear from our book club members on Goodreads so we can incorporate your feedback into our discussion podcast episode. Um, I just loaded up the book on my Kindle. Um, so I'm really excited to dig into it, especially now when we're all kind of just stuck indoors. Yeah, maybe we should start a Discord so that we feel hey, less lonely. I was just thinking that actually. Oh, really? <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> Great minds think alike. As we're quarantined here in LA, you know, thinking of ways to improve our book club experience. Uh, but as always, uh, thanks for joining us um, on Books and Bulba. And we'll see you next week for our mid-month episode where we talk about the latest publishing news. I feel like there's been a bunch. I I feel really guilty for saying this, but I really haven't been checking book Twitter lately. (laughs) It's Twitter is a bad place right now because there's just so much news about coronavirus and just uh, independent bookstores struggling and small businesses going out of business. And yeah, it's just pretty depressing. And maybe piracy, right? Oh, yeah. Piracy. That was a big thing. Yeah. Well, we'll see y'all next time on Books and Lola. Bye, everyone. Bye. Thanks for listening to Books and Boba. This podcast was hosted by Marvin Yue and Rira Yu and edited and produced by Marvin Yue. Follow the book club on Twitter and Instagram by going to at Books and Boba and engage with us on Goodreads on our Goodreads group. You can also check out past episodes of the podcast by going to booksandboba.com and by subscribing to us on your favorite podcast app. Books and Boba is a proud member of the Potluck Podcast Collective, a collective of Asian-American-hosted podcasts featuring unique voices and stories from the Asian diaspora. Learn more about the collective and check out our fellow Potluck shows by visiting the website podcastpotluck.com. Thanks for listening. Mm, but we're still here. It's an exciting time in Asian America. There are more movies, TV shows, books, and music reflecting us than ever. But all of these represent just a small slice of Asian American culture and experiences. So what do we do? Tell more slices. Asian Americana is a show that explores these slices of distinctly Asian American culture and history. We've talked about how Chinese Americans built California's Sacramento Delta, the art scene turns gallery institution giant robot, a play that explores the lost Cambodian pop music of the 60s and 70s, and, of course, Boba, just to name a few stories. You can find Asian Americana at asianamericana.com or on your podcast app.